Hello, greetings, thanks for joining us. We hope that you're well. We've been exploring perhaps one of the most important questions that we can explore in our lives. What are we looking for out of life? Our answer might change a little bit at different times in our lives, but whatever the answer seems to be, deep down, it always involves participation with other people and enjoying the other people who are in our lives. We yearn for a relationship with others and to find true unity. That is why in the United States, on our seal, it reads E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. And that is a perennial goal and desire for people in America to be one people in one nation. We see such things also praised in song, and we also find it as we have seen in the New Testament, where in John 17, 20-23, Jesus identifies the oneness of God and the oneness that Jesus intends for us to have with God and with one another. We have seen that unity begins with the one God. God is a spirit. He's our creator. He's intelligent, and he is well beyond us. And as we've seen in Deuteronomy 6, 4-6, and John 17, 20-23, he is one in three persons. He manifests relational unity within himself. God, in 1 John 4, it is love. He shares love within himself, and he wants to share that love and relationship with his offspring. Humanity is made in God's image, and as is, are his offspring. And we are made to share a relationship with God and with one another. We have seen that God made a very good creation, but it's been corrupted. And that corruption came from the introduction of sin, and as a result, death. Sin is a result of all pain, source of all pain, misery, suffering, and evil in the world. And we suffer from the consequences of sin, and we participate in sin. And we cannot solve our sin problem on our own, because we are guilty of transgression, in Romans chapter 3. And in Jesus of Nazareth, the one man, God did what we could not do. Jesus lived, did good, suffered on behalf to forgive sin, was raised from the dead, and he reigns now as Lord. Matthew 4, John 1, 29, 1 Corinthians 15, and Hebrews 4, 15. And it is for us to believe in him, confess his name, repent of our sin, and be immersed in water in his name so that we can serve him. And through Jesus, we can be reconciled back to our creator. But it doesn't stop there, because we are, as we saw in John 17, 20 23, to be one with one another. We are to be the one body of Christ, as many members with individual functions, but working together for the benefit of the whole, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. That this body of Christ is the church, in Colossians 1.18, and that God's eternal plan is manifest in that church, in having people of all different kinds of backgrounds coming together to share in love together, in Ephesians 3.10 and 11. And that is why we are to strive to build each other up in Christ, to be one with one another. Now, that might have seen well and good, as we've seen in the one God, the one man, and one another. But does this one story we've been talking about make sense of what God has revealed in the Old and New Testaments? It is good to now spend some time exploring Scripture in terms of how God has reconciled man to himself to see. And so we're going to tell the story that we find in the pages of Scripture. And we encourage you to consider the references as we go through, but we're doing a very uh, high-level looking over the whole story, as we're not going to be able to get into a whole lot of details. But before the beginning, there was God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they have always been, they are, and always will be one God in three persons. 
They are love, and as we've talked about, they are in perichoretic relational unity, which means they mutually indwell one another without any of them losing any distinctiveness in person because of it, like a symphony, like uh, people in marriage, um, many other ways we can look at that kind of perichoretic relational unity. We see that in John 17, Ephesians 3, and Revelation 4, 8. But for our purposes, the story begins with the creation in Genesis 1 and 2. That God spoke the creation into existence by his word, which is be an important theme in John chapter 1, the first three verses, something seen already in Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9. That God made all things well, that everything was in its proper place by its kind, and it was made very good. And man was made in God's image, male and female in his image, and made to work the ground and be the steward of the creation. That Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and innocent, and they enjoyed face-to-face relationship with God. But then we see the fall of man in Genesis 3-11, through 11, and explained in Romans 1, 5, and 8. Adam and Eve were given but one real commandment by God, not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent, later identified as Satan, tempts Eve with the fruit of that tree, which means he got her to doubt God's goodness toward them. He twisted God's command. He flattered her vanity. And she was tempted, and she ate of it, and she persuaded Adam, her husband, to eat. The consequences of that were immediate and severe. They perceived their nakedness, and they were ashamed. They had rebelled against their creator and suffered separation from him, both physically and spiritually. They were cast out of the garden and compelled to work the ground. They began dying that day. The whole creation was subjected to decay, corruption, and futility. Sin and death at that moment took over. Pain, suffering, sickness, violence, and death were now reality in God's creation. And then Adam and Eve's son Cain kills their other son Abel. And within a few generations, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually in Genesis 6 and verse 5. And because of that, God purged the world of its evil with the flood, and only Noah and his family were spared. But there remained unity among mankind in language until they came together at Shinar to build the Tower of Babel, which we also call Babylon. They made a name for themselves there so they would not be scattered, and so God confused their language and were and scattered them. And so man's fall was as complete as it was thorough. He was separated from God, separated from one another, separated without hope, without an estate, without commitment, without each other, and uh, without God, without God, and without redemption. And man persisted in his rebellion. They knew something was greater than he, they were, but they made gods out of the natural forces that God had put in motion. Because of this, sin increased, and the distance between God and man's creation increased, and man on his own could not bridge that divide. Now, if the story ended at Genesis 11 and verse 10, very bad things would happen to mankind. We have no point even having this conversation. But thanks be to God that he called to himself one man out of service of false gods to believe in him and to follow him. His name was Abraham. He later changed to Abraham. And Abraham was from Ur. And he went to Haran and he was called to live in Canaan in Genesis 12. And this part of the story is the rest of the book of Genesis. God promised to bless Abraham if Abraham followed him. Abraham believed in God, trusted in God, and maintained a relationship with God. God promised Abraham that he would have a son with Sarah, his wife. Descendants through that son would inherit the land of Canaan, and that son was Isaac. Abraham even proved willing to offer Isaac back up to God. And God promised that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In Genesis 22:18. 18. 
And so God sought to reconcile all people to himself through Abraham and Abraham's family. Isaac would have a son named Jacob, who also would receive the same promise. And Jacob would wrestle with an angel one day and would receive the name Israel, wrestles with God. Jacob has 12 sons with four women. The promise of Abraham would extend to descendants of all those 12. And that gets us to the story of Israel in the books of Exodus through Malachi. Because God would now work with one nation and not a series of individuals. This nation, Israel, would have to learn to depend on God and him alone, to learn he is the only God and all other so-called gods are really not. And so we have the Exodus in the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus. Because Jacob's descendants had gone to Egypt because of a famine, they were enslaved and participated in hard service. God chose Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, and he brought plagues upon the Egyptians. And God rescued Israel out of Egyptian slavery and demonstrated his great power to all the surrounding nations. And from then on, Israel would be in the wilderness in Exodus through Deuteronomy. In that wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, they were dependent upon God for food, drink, and protection. God spoke directly to Israel at Sinai, and he declared he wanted to be the God of Israel and that Israel would be his people. And he made an agreement there called a covenant with Israel that he would be their God and they would be his people. He would give them Canaan and its blessings and they would obey his law. Israel agreed to that covenant and God gave Moses the law at Sinai encapsulated in the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. It also had laws about sacrifices, about how sin would be covered or atoned by sacrificing innocent animals to cover for their sins, to offer other sacrifices to keep peace with God and to honor him with the best of their produce. It provided specifications of the tabernacle, guidelines about purity and holiness and festivals, and the consecration of the Levites for priestly service. The law would prove to be a guide to understand in a physical way what was necessary to maintain a spiritual relationship with God, and it would be the basis of all future instruction and fulfillment. And originally, God wanted all Israel to serve as priests, but the Israelites sinned and they made a god out of gold. And it was only the Levites who were on God's side, and so only Levites would serve before God in Exodus 32. Throughout their time in the wilderness, Israel rebelled against God. They died in the wilderness because of their transgressions. And 40 years later, the next generation would enter the land of Canaan and conquer much, but not all of that land in the book of Joshua. At this time, God has fulfilled many of the promises he had made to Abraham. Israel was his people. They had taken over much of Canaan, and in fact, that land is now known as Israel. But Israel proved faithless over and over, and they conformed to the practices of the pagan Canaanites around them. God would, at the earliest time, deliver them by the hand of a judge, and the people would change for a time, but revert to old practices. After about 400 years of that, Israel had grown so depraved and and wicked that only central authority could bring even a modicum of morality. And Israel wanted a king like the nations around them. Book of Judges through 1 Samuel chapter 8. God gives them over to that rebellion and gave them kings. It would provide some stability, but would also be the final undoing of Israel. The kings begin with the united monarchy in 1 Samuel 9 through 1 Kings 10 and 1 Chronicles 10 through 2 Chronicles 9. The first king is Saul, son of Kish Benjamin, anointed to be king based on appearance, and he did not prove faithful to God. David, son of Jesse of Judah, was anointed by, as king by God's command. He trusted in God, he defeated Israel's enemies, and he brought peace to the land by God's help. 
This is by David. Uh, Jerusalem was established as the capital, and his son Solomon would build a temple for God in Jerusalem, but would be led astray by his many wives. And so in 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 25 and the rest of 2 Chronicles, we read about the division of the monarchy. Israel in the north ruled first by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who built two temples and placed statues of calves, calling them Yahweh in them. And all kings after him would follow in that idolatry. And some would go even further, like Ahab, of great uh, ill repute, uh, to do much worse in serving other gods. In the south was the kingdom of Judah, and the descendants of David ruled over uh, Judah. Some of them followed God, many did not. It's at this time that we see the most prominent time of the prophets, those whom God entrusted a message for Israel and Judah. As we can see from Isaiah through Malachi. Elijah was the most famous prophet. He stood up against the service of Baal in Israel. Prophets consistently commanded and exhorted and begged Israel to stop serving other gods, to return to God and serve him only. They compared Israel's idolatry to adultery. God was the husband who could only tolerate so much of his wife's infidelity. If Israel would not stop following other gods, God would prove yet again that he was the only God in judgment, but this time on Israel. Some likely listened to the prophets, but most did not. And so the prophetic indictment would come to pass. Israel was overrun and exiled by the Assyrians. Judah would later be overrun and exiled by the Babylonians. And when the Persians would begin to rule, some exiled Judahites, now called Jews, returned to Israel. As can be seen in Ezra and Nehemiah, he built the city and its temple. Now they had learned their lesson, and they tried to be faithful to God, but they weren't really free people. They were ruled over by Persians, then by Greeks, and then by Romans. Israel sustained itself on the hope given by the prophets that, yes, days of judgment had come, but there would be a day when God would restore their fortunes, that he would send one from the line of David who would be given power and authority, would suffer for sin, would triumph over the nations, and through him the nations would learn of God. And so God was seeking to reconcile the world to himself through Israel, that Israel would be a source of blessing to the world, but Israel persisted in sin. But then the appointed time had come. The fourth empire that Daniel the prophet saw, Rome, ruled. Travel had not been easier and would not be again for 1900 years. Rome had established a general peace. Greek was spoken throughout the east. Herod was rebuilding the temple in a magnificent way. And the angel Gabriel visited a man named Zechariah, promising the beginning of the fulfillment of all that was written in the prophets. He would have a son, John the Baptist, who would prepare the way of the Lord. Gabriel also spoke with a teenage girl named Mary who would give birth to the Christ, the son of David. It was all happening exactly as had been prophesied, but not as expected. The child who was born in Bethlehem was raised in the backwaters of Galilee and Nazareth. He was uneducated, humble, and poor. He would fulfill all what the law and prophets had said of him, but it wouldn't be the way Israel would expect. Jesus of Nazareth was baptized by John. The Father and the Spirit bore witness that the triune God was working through Jesus. Jesus suffered temptation in the desert at the hands of Satan. Adam had sinned when he was tempted. Jesus did not. Jesus chose twelve men, mostly uneducated fishermen and another laborers, a tax collector, a revolutionary or two, and he considered them his primary disciples and agents. He performed many powerful signs that demonstrated the power of God was in him. He taught the people with authority, not like the religious leaders in whom the people had put their trust. He commanded them to change their ways, because the kingdom of God was coming soon. 
Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, that he and the Father were one, and identified himself with the very name of God, Yahweh. The people saw him as a prophet like Moses, Elijah, and other holy men of old, and they wondered if he had, was really the one who was prophesied to come. The religious authorities heard his claims. They resisted him, but could not overcome his arguments. Most likely in the year 30, Jesus came to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover, the annual reminder that God had delivered Israel from the Egyptians. And at that time, the people expected Jesus to set up his kingdom, to dispossess the Romans and begin ruling. Instead, he cleared out the temple and challenged the religious authorities. But he was betrayed by one of his disciples, put on trial, condemned and executed by crucifixion, a humiliating and painful way of death. And in this way, Jesus of Nazareth died, executed as a political insurrectionist. And after that, his disciples and followers were despondent and confused. How could that have been the way it happened? But on the third day after his, his crucifixion, some of his female followers came to his tomb and found it empty. Jesus appeared in a trans-physical body to the women, then his disciples and followers as he had promised. And over the next 40 days, he explained what had happened. And Jesus had gained victory not over the Romans, but Satan, sin, and death itself. Jesus was the new Adam, the Lamb of God. He was perfect, and he atoned for sin. He gained victory over sin through suffering and dying. He gained victory over death in his resurrection. And now, through him, people could have their hope for their own resurrection. And he explained how he had fulfilled God's purposes for Israel, as we can see in the Gospel accounts. As a high priest in the Earl of Melchizedek, before Levi, both king and priest, uh, Jesus now ruled. He was a suffering servant that Isaiah had spoken of. He embodied the story of Israel. Israel had left the land for Egypt, came out of Egypt, dwelt in the land, was exiled and returned. And Jesus went to Egypt as a boy. He came back to the land of Israel. He lived, he died, which is a form of exile, and was raised again in power in the return, so that now he could lead the story forward. Jesus was God the Word, God the Son made flesh. He was Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was sent by the Father in love to reconcile mankind back to God, that by taking on flesh and he showed mankind how to live by his example and teaching, he becomes a bridge that spans that separation between God and man. That Jesus was able to undo what Adam had done. And Jesus points the way to a new creation in the resurrection. Now, having fulfilled all of what was written about him, he could now establish the fulfillness of God's purposes in his kingdom. And so Jesus ascended to the Father and received all power and authority as had been promised in Daniel chapter 7 and Acts chapter 1. And he now ruled over his kingdom that he had spoken about. It was not a physical kingdom. He would not reign on a throne in Jerusalem. People under God's rule in Christ, in fact, live under different earthly rulers. Jesus rules over his kingdom from heaven. He is now Lord of Lord and King of Kings. The nations have come and gone. Jesus' kingdom endures. And so in Acts chapter 2, 40 days after his resurrection and 10 days after his ascension, is the day of Pentecost, a Jewish festival of the first fruits. It was also a memorial of when God had given the law to Moses. At that time, the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles, and the people heard in their own languages the mighty works of God. One of the disciples, Simon Peter, preaches Jesus' resurrection, which the apostles had witnessed, and demonstrated that in so doing, God had made Jesus both Lord and Christ. 3,000 Jewish people believed, repented, and were baptized. And the church, manifesting God's kingdom on earth, had begun. Now notice that at Babel, man's language had been confused. But on Pentecost, in the Spirit, all of them heard God's work. Man did not need to be separated from God or each other. 
And it would be in the book of Acts, chapter 3, chapter 3 through chapter 9, that the apostles and other Christians would spread the good news about Jesus throughout Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And then beginning in chapter 10, Jesus gave a vision to Peter, cleansing what was called common. And Peter was called a priest to Cornelius, a pagan Roman centurion. Cornelius received the Spirit as Peter and the apostles had received it. And in so doing, God demonstrated that the Gentiles were to hear the gospel of Christ and be saved as Gentiles, not as Jews. This would become a matter of great conflict later, but his truth would be upheld by Peter and Paul and others. And in fact, within 40 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel of his life and death and resurrection had spread throughout the Roman world. And there were small groups of believers in local churches that had formed in many cities in Italy, Greece, Turkey, Israel, and Egypt. As the Apostle Paul went about preaching, he kept correspondence with churches that he had helped to form and individuals he wanted to encourage. These letters were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they were preserved and distributed widely, and they encouraged many beyond their original audience, so believers to this day could understand the message of the gospel. And the apostles, Matthew and John, and the associates of the apostles, Mark and Luke, recorded in writing the life of Jesus in the four gospels. The apostles Peter and John, and James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, and the anonymous author of the Hebrews wrote letters to encourage Christians in the faith. And these materials would become the New Testament, instructing Christians how to believe and work with each other. Jesus is the new Adam undoing what the first Adam did. We learn of how God reconciles man to himself in Jesus, undoing the separation that took place in the garden, the flood, and at Babel. Jesus is the promised descendant of Abraham who would provide a blessing to all nations, that all who share in Abraham's faith are his spiritual descendants, that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all these promises. And all these things we see that God taught to Israel physically and in shadows what Jesus embodies fully and spiritually, as do his people. Israel is a physical nation, redeemed and set apart, and now the church is spiritually reformed, redeemed and set apart. Holiness and as cleanliness, gnaws and sacrifices in the old law, now Jesus manifests true holiness, and believers offer their lives as sacrifices. There was a physical temple in Israel. Now God dwells in his people spiritually, individually, and collectively. And the covenant with Israel foreshadows the covenant with all mankind in Jesus. Now, Jesus had come to his people, Israel, but they rejected him, both in his life and also the preaching in his name. About 40 years after Jesus died and was raised, they took matters in their own hands and rebelled against Rome. The Romans came, completely defeated the Israelites, destroyed the temple, just that Jesus had predicted. Jesus was vindicated. God's judgment on Israel was definitive. The temple has not been restored to this very day, and now modern Judaism has no greater claim to antiquity than Christianity, at least in the form that Judaism takes today. Let all who have ears to hear listen and understand. By the end of the first century, the apostles were dead, and with them new information about Jesus. All that we could know and needed to know about Jesus had been made known by them. And the early Christians who came after them insisted on appealing on what they had already learned from about Jesus as written by the apostles in what we call the New Testament. And in fact, we can hear the words of the apostles to this day when we read the New Testament. The last message given by God was to John in Revelation. And in Revelation, all the biblical themes vividly portray pictures of what was to come. That God would gain victory over spiritual forces of darkness and the Roman power that they energized. We can see the majesty of God enthroned and the glory which God seeks to give all those who trust in Jesus and have been obedient to him. 
and the end of Revelation is consistent with the rest of the preaching and teaching the apostles about what will come to pass on the final day. That on one day Jesus is going to return to earth and will take on the role God gave him as judge of all mankind. That those who remain separated from God will find themselves separated eternally in the resurrection of condemnation. But those who faithfully sought to maintain a relationship with God and Christ will enjoy the resurrection of life. The kingdom, God's people, are pictured as glorified beyond measure, dwelling in some type of new heaven and earth, with God in their midst, in a scene reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. The end is thus seen as a beginning, God and man having a face-to-face relationship, unbroken, but this time having conquered pain, sin, and death through Jesus and the resurrection. We will understand fully. We will know as we are known, and we will be fully satisfied in God our Creator. All of that story was uh, wrote, written down about, happened, or described thousands of years ago. And the big question remains, is it relevant now? A lot of people want to know, what, what, why should we care about this stuff if it happened 2,000 years ago or more? Well, God's plan is said to be eternal. God continues to sustain the creation. And that God is as interested in us today as he was with people all those years ago. In Ephesians 3, 10 and 11, Hebrews 1, 3, and Romans chapter 8. It's very easy for us today to kind of get in despair about these things. We can read and be encouraged by the example of people in faith of old. That Adam and Noah and Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, and others serve God, but they also heard from him. It seems to be a little easier, right? They seem to have more faith than we do. They seem to definitely know their role in all of it, even if it proved difficult at times. So what is ours? It's interesting to note that the Hebrew author, who went through and described in the great hall of faith all these great people who had served God and done all these wonderful things that we find so encouraging, and yet he says in Hebrews 11, beginning of verse 39, And all these, though commended for their, through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So think about that. All those great people of faith are waiting for us to step up and do our part. They will not be made perfect without us. And so we have our part to play in God's story. God is still rescuing people from sin, darkness, and death in Jesus. God still seeks for people to enjoy a relationship with him through Jesus. Yes, the end will come one day, as we have seen from the scriptures, but that day is not yet. God's story is still being played out, even if its script of the beliefs and the conduct of its participants has already been written. And so you have a role in God's story, because God made you to share a relationship with him and with your fellow man, because God is one in relational unity, and you are made in his image. You've been separated, though, because of your sins, your transgression and rebellion. And you can't change that on your own. No matter how much good you try to do, you can't undo the transgressions that you've done. While you're separated from God, you tend to rebel more and more and seek satisfaction in the things of this world that really don't satisfy and ultimately are going to be destroyed. And if you die in that condition, it's too late. You're going to be separated from God, and you're going to remain separated from God eternally. 
But that is not what God wants. Because God has been working to reconcile man to himself, culminating in Jesus, God the Son, taking on flesh, bridging that wide gap between God and man, and in love giving of himself so that you could be reconciled back to God. And God's invitation to you in Jesus still extended. God loves you. He's not going to force you in a relationship, but he invites you to accept for you to trust that Jesus is Lord, to believe in him in Acts 16, 16, to declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God in Romans chapter 10, to decide to change your heart and mind, to no longer think and feel and act the way you did before, but to learn to think, feel, and act like Jesus did in repentance, as we see in Acts 2.38, and to be willing to submit yourself to immersion in water for the remission of your sins to receive the forgiveness that comes in Jesus' blood and thus being joined with Christ in a spiritual death and resurrection, Acts 2.38, Romans 6.3-7. And then you can begin running that race that's been set before us, to glorify God in how you live, to become like Jesus in the way you think, feel, and act, to better manifest the fruit of the Spirit and less of the works of the flesh. Oh, there'll be temptations to sin, but you have the opportunity to look toward Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and to receive encouragement from all the heroes of faith that have come before us. These heroes are alive in spirit, and they're waiting the resurrection. They cheer us on as we seek to continue God's glory and advance his kingdom and his purposes in our lives. But you can't run this race on your own. You must begin sharing life with other believers in Jesus and a local congregation of his people to develop relationships not just with God, but also with fellow Christians, strengthening them while you also receive strengthening, and in this way getting a foretaste of that joy that we're all looking forward to experience in the resurrection when we are completely united with a triune God and one another in the unbroken relationship. The choice is yours. God wants you to enjoy a relationship with you and wants you to take your part in the one story today. We encourage you to do so and to join us as we seek to do the same and obtain the resurrection of life in Jesus and to be in God's presence forevermore. We please encourage you to consider this. If you'd like to talk more about this, if you need to find a place to go to uh, meet with fellow Christians, to learn more about Jesus, uh, we encourage you to visit us and contact us through our website at VenturechurchChrist.org or on social media. You can also contact me, Ethan Longhenry, personally at DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We hope that you've appreciated this one-story study, uh, and we hope you have a great day. Thank you very much.